Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Intervals, a public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. I'm Christopher Brick here on behalf of the OH Committee on Marketing and Communications, and here as well to welcome our ninth guest scholar of this lecture series on the history of public health and epidemic disease. Dr. Jacob Steer Williams is with us today from the Department of History at the College of Charleston, where he's currently an associate professor. Of all the experiences that the committee, myself, and our lead producer, I.K. David, had in trying together season one, the production story of Jacob's episode turned out to be the most meta in that self-referential sense of the prefix as, as something that truly refers or reflects back upon itself. Um, and so just a little backstory because it's one of the things about this episode that's always stuck with me and I think always will. So in order to ensure high quality audio for each of these recordings, IK circulated amongst all the participants a few standardized microphone setups with the instruction to sanitize each of them with a, a disinfecting agent prior to either return shipment to the podcast or circulation to the next participant in the production schedule. By that point, uh, it was already becoming pretty clear that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, could not survive or replicate on surfaces, thus making fomite or surface-based transmission a non-concern. Incidentally, this is also why just about every CVS or Walgreens or Dwayne Reed you walk into these days has a clearance bin full of deeply discounted hand sanitizer, often in bottles much larger than the size most of us were accustomed to seeing at retail at in the pre-pandemic before times. Uh, this is an overhang of that initial wave of public health guidance in the spring of 2020 that emphasized antisepsis as a key intervention against community spread of COVID-19. Little did I can I realize, though, that Jacob's talk is itself an exploration of the way that the concept of surface dis disinfection, still relatively novel in the early 20th century, contributed an important new vocabulary to American political culture gaining currency as a potent way to pathologize immigrants, the poor, and people of color as themselves a dangerous form of contagion that biomedicine could help to treat, remediate, or eradicate even. We see this quite clearly in the growth of the eugenics movement during the progressive era and into the 1920s and 1930s, and so too in the chemical disinfectant boom of the early 20th century. As Jacob relates to us in his talk, American and European public health officials made liberal use of the new antiseptic agents that contemporary chemistry had afforded them, dipping and spraying indigenous peoples and migrants into vats and mists of skin-burning carbolic acid. At port cities across the Atlantic, carbolic acid was used to disinfect ships and cargo, the dangerous labor often falling to the poor and disenfranchised. At the same time, safer versions of these chemical products were marketed to middle-class women 
as a part of the everyday fight against disease that had to be waged in the home. All of this context from Jacob's talk gave me a new way to look at and understand the simple message we'd included in that parcel all those months ago. The simple message to disinfect the microphone before passing it along or sending it back. Even something as seemingly mundane and innocuous as that does indeed have a past that can help to inform and enrich our understanding of the present. And with that, I give you Jacob Steer Williams on the obsession to disinfect and why it unequally impacts our communities. Greetings, everyone. This is Jacob Steer Williams. I'm an associate professor at the College of Charleston and a historian of public health. And I'm really thrilled to be participating in the OAH Intervals Lecture, today focusing on the period 1901 to 1913, originating America's 20th century. Early in the COVID-19 pandemic, I noticed something interesting in my hometown of Charleston, South Carolina. Advertising signs started to pop up along popular roadside intersections calling for COVID-19 disinfection. One local company, the Bud Group, who calls themselves a God-honoring company of excellence, offers a thorough disinfection service where they spray electrostatic disinfection throughout homes and businesses. They expressly talk about the fear and uncertainty in their advertising surrounded COVID-19 and that their services can give you, quote-unquote, peace of mind. These signs still litter the Charleston roads, though I'm unsure the extent to which people have actually used the services of companies like this. For the first few months of the COVID-19 pandemic, Americans were obsessed with cleaning surfaces. We're familiar with the controversies over mask wearing, something I might add that didn't happen in most East Asian countries, but seldom discussed or explored during our own pandemic has been the ideas and practices surrounding disinfection and their historical reflections. Early in 2020, I saw people wearing gloves out at stores. Sometimes these were rubber gloves, but I recall seeing more than once someone donning gardening or even hunting gloves. Once while pumping gas in March, even after I had sanitized the pump handle using a Clorox wipe, a stranger approached me, imploring me not to directly touch the handle. I'm hearing lots of rumors about how this plague spreads, he warned me. Better to be safe than sorry. For months, it was difficult to get a hold of household disinfectants. The ubiquitous and convenient Lysol and Clorox wipes flew off of shelves, and so too did anything that marketed itself against germs. In April of 2020, American President Donald Trump, in a COVID-19 briefing, suggested that Americans might ingest common household disinfectants, Lysol and bleach, a comment he later walked back as a joke. His dangerous suggestion came after a government scientist described the latest research on how long the novel coronavirus remains on common surfaces and what chemical means can destroy it. The president and his team was correct that disinfectants, in proper proportion and with enough time and contact, do destroy most disease-causing microorganisms, but he was wrong to suggest that people should ingest these dangerous products. Reichert Bentkiser, the British company that makes Lysol, issued a quick, quick rebuke of the president's gaffe, making clear that 
As a global leader in health and hygiene products, we must be clear that under no circumstances should our disinfectant products be administered into the human body through ingestion, injection, or any other route. As a historian of late 19th and early 20th century public health and epidemic disease, the controversy over the president's remarks over disinfection struck a familiar chord to me. Beginning in the late 19th century, disinfection and disinfectants exploded into popular use in the fight against infectious disease. Armed with the new knowledge derived from laboratory discoveries that specific microorganisms cause certain infectious diseases, a finding that we otherwise call today the germ theory, public health authorities around the world began to ask a very simple, but it turns out complicated question. How can we destroy these invisible enemies? They turned to chemical disinfectants. The popular view, accompanied by a set of popular practices, was the complete disinfection of suspected things, people, and places. I like to call this a carbolic craze, which reached its height in the period from 1900 to World War I, the time period I focus on in this lecture. The phrase carbolic craze is named after a commonly used disinfectant of the time, carbolic acid, which was derived from industrial coal tar production. There were three distinct arenas in American life where we can see the carbolic craze, which I will explore in my lecture. One, the use of dangerous chemical disinfectants by public health authorities in urban cities, at ports, and along the borders. Two, the marketing of safer domestic disinfection products, particularly to middle-class women. And three, the way in which disinfection became central to American imperial efforts overseas in this period. Carbolic acid, as I mentioned, was the byproduct of a burgeoning industrial and chemical industry in the early 20th century. It was first used to deodorize sewers and toilets in mid-19th century Europe. The belief at that time was that dangerous smells, miasmas from rotting human and animal materials, could be breathed in and cause disease. Destroy the smells, mainstream 19th century medical thought went, and prevent disease. By the 1870s, Scottish surgeon Joseph Lister had established a controversial but fascinating practice of using carbolic acid in surgical practice to prevent operative and post-operative infection. In the 1880s, a number of public health authorities in Europe, in North America, and throughout colonial locations began to use carbolic acid with striking vivacity. With the discovery of many of the causative microorganisms, first bacteria, of infectious diseases in the period from 1880 to 1900, carbolic acid and similar disinfectants were the central technology of choice in stopping the spread of disease. But carbolic acid and similarly used chemical disinfectants are highly dangerous, caustic to the skin, and fatal if ingested. So how were they used? Who were they used on? And why were they used? I want to start with the question of how American public health authorities justified the use of dangerous chemical disinfectants, the dangers of which were known at the time. 
Often disinfectants of this sort were supported as an expedient response to an epidemic of infectious disease. Drastic times, after all, call for drastic measures, officials said at the time. In the late 1890s, bubonic plague, for example, exploded around the world in what historians call the third plague pandemic, striking India and China the hardest with nearly 12 million deaths. But the pandemic also spread to the U.S., notably in San Francisco. American health officials there used, issued quarantine orders to remove Chinese Americans and sent teams of disinfection officers into Chinatown using horse-drawn wagons carrying giant pumps of disinfectant that was sprayed into houses, onto houses, and amongst their contents. It was clearly one of the most invasive public health practices in American history, mirroring what British public health officials were doing at the time in India, in China, and in Africa. But disinfection, I want to make clear, was more than just of political expediency during an epidemic. In the first two decades of the 20th century, it was an everyday reality. There were earlier precedents, such as the widespread use of sulfur fumigation machines at port cities. The popular Clayton machine, for example, first used in the mid-19th century to fumigate ships during yellow fever outbreaks, particularly in cities such as New Orleans, was familiar to American health officers, as historians Christos Linteris and Lucas Engelman explore in their new book called Sulfuric Utopias. But chemical disinfectants using carbolic acid, dangerous chemicals, was quite another story, and one that's largely been untold. Take, for example, one of the earliest and most important books on the subject, Disinfection and Disinfectants, by Milton Rosenau, published in 1902. Rosenau was the director of the Hygienic Laboratory. He worked with the U.S. Public Health Service and the Marine Hospital Service and was connected with the elite of American public health at the time. He even worked closely in his acknowledgement of this 1900 book with U.S. Surgeon General Walter Wyman. Here's what Rosenau had to say in 1902. With the advent and advance of the science of bacteriology, the practice of disinfection is directed against the destruction of bacteria wherever they were found, in the air, the soil, the water, on clothing, and fabrics, or about patients and his discharges. He went on also to mention animal vectors that spread disease, mosquitoes for yellow fever and malaria, flies for typhoid fever, rats for bubonic plague. It is the duty of the disinfector, Rosenau went on, to destroy infection wherever it is found. Just think about the ubiquity of his, his language there. Disinfection, in other words, was a technical arm of what historian Ruth Rogoski has called hygienic modernity. And pay close attention to Rosenau's language in his 1902 book, where he made an important distinction. When proper precautionary measures have been taken, he noted, there is little need of subsequently disinfecting. But when due to carelessness, and, and listen to his language here, when due to carelessness or lack of precaution, the result of ignorance, a general disinfection becomes necessary. And what's interesting here, I think, is the opaqueness of his language. 
the agency of who deemed someone negligent or ignorant at this time. And we should pause and, and ask the question of how actually disinfection worked in practice on the ground as an everyday reality in America at this time. And the answer, and this perhaps should not surprise us, was that overwhelmingly American public health officers directed their sanitary gaze in the first two decades of the 20th century to immigrants, to the working classes, to women, and to people of color. City governments around the country were armed with big, expensive steam disinfectors for clothing and horse-drawn, human-operated pumps for spraying chemical disinfectants onto spaces, homes, movie theaters, cable cars, and barracks. Examining the wealth of printed and archival documents on the practice of disinfection in the first decades of the 20th century, it's clear to me that the practices of disinfection were anything but standardized. There were dozens of steam disinfectors on the market, and the length of time articles of clothing, for example, should be disinfected wasn't standardized either. Chemical disinfection in particular was erratic. What chemical should be used? In what strength? How should it be applied? It was clear to early 20th century public health authorities from evidence gleaned from laboratory studies that certain chemicals had the property to destroy disease-causing organisms. But translating that laboratory knowledge into everyday practice was not straightforward. Spraying chemical disinfectants was a dangerous and, and often cumbersome process. Mixing harmful chemicals to proper strength, loading them into iron chambers, and manually pumping them into surfaces of rooms was risky and haphazard for those working-class men, and the work was surely gendered at that time, who undertook it. In order to be effective, contemporaries noted that all surfaces had to be wet, ceilings, walls, floors, and objects. So imagine the reality of of actually doing this kind of disinfection work by public authorities. What might be destroyed? What impact on the health of the community and on the people doing this work? The reality is that across the country, in urban cities and especially at ports and across the northern and southern borders, disinfection was an everyday reality. The annual report of the Surgeon General of the U.S. Public Health Service in 1899, made clear to local authorities around the country that disinfection was to be chief among the central arms of American public health. And across the country, the legal powers entrusted upon public health authorities were quite sweeping, and they were historically unprecedented in some ways. Take, for example, a Portland law in 1910, which stated, the health department is hereby authorized and empowered to disinfect or destroy property of whatsoever nature as may be deemed necessary to prevent the spread of communicable diseases, and it is hereby made the duty of the health department to disinfect or destroy such property as may be deemed necessary to prevent the spread of such disease." But what's interesting to me is that the health risks of using chemical disinfectants were well known at the time. The Surgeon General in 1899 advised port and border authorities 
that when disinfecting with the commonly used duo of carbolic acid and bichloride of mercury, also known at the time as corrosive supplement, that the people actually doing the work of disinfection should wear rubber boots and coats, gloves, broad-brimmed hats, and he noted, it is well to protect the eyes by glasses from the flying spray. Local authorities were advised upon finding someone either confirmed with smallpox furthermore, or someone that had even come into contact with a confirmed smallpox case, to remove them to an isolation hospital where they should be disinfected with formaldehyde along with their clothing and isolated for 14 days. Contemporary chemists were clear that these chemicals used posed a number of health risks, from the inhalation and damage to the lungs to tissue destroying contact with the skin. In 1913, in many states such as New York, bichloride of mercury could not be sold in retail stores except individually wrapped in tablet formed and labeled labeled poison in red letters. And in practice, and here's where the rubber hits the road, those targeted for disinfection, immigrants and people of color, were not duly as protected as those doing the disinfection work. It wasn't until injuries and deaths from chemicals such as carbolic acid and bichloride of mercury increased by the 1920s that it was viewed as a poison and treated with care. The practice of disinfection, like to continue, was ubiquitous. Everyday objects like mail were regularly disinfected, particularly during outbreaks of infectious disease. So too was something as common as paper money. And just as important as dangerous things were dangerous spaces. Represented in new ways of living, working, and entertainment, particularly in newly industrialized cities. And we can think of spaces like amusement parks, arcades, Nickelodeons, penny arcades, and later movie theaters, restaurants, hotels. They all served as feared spots where infectious diseases could be transferred. New transportation networks that someone harboring an infectious disease could travel by train from Chicago to New York in only two days by 1900. In that year, remember, the Wright brothers famously began looking for locations for their flying experiments, picking Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And what I mean to say here is that connectivity, in other words, was central to American thinking in the early 20th century. The fear of connecting via germs was in part rational then, but in practice, what we can say was that it was racialized. Take another highly illustrative example. In 1910, the makers of Sapolio Soap established one of the earliest germ marketing campaigns in American history. They targeted urban streetcars as places to advertise their sanitary hygienic messaging. It shouldn't come as a surprise as the streetcar came to represent in the early 20th century a technology of close proximity, of collapsing space and time, but also one with new inherent fears, physical closeness to strangers. Sapolio did a six-year campaign, creating advertising scenes on the inside of streetcars, showing imaginary spotless towns, who had hygienic white heroes, epitomized by policemen. And those were contrasted with dingy towns, filled with filthy immigrants. 
the effect was pretty significant. And within a short time, American cities, in reality, voted to become representative spotless towns. And there's evidence that across America in public schools, kids even practice spotless town plays. This had become a public health media campaign ingrained in the American cultural imagination. And it was more than clever marketing, moreover, as there were real public health practices at play here that we need to unpack. Fears of streetcars, elevators, and the telephone were common these new technologies of connection, but they also became seen as technologies of spreading germs. In particular, the fear was strangers, and this often was evinced in the working classes and on immigrants. And let me provide something of a humorous example as another jumping off point about how disinfection practices were at the center of American life in the early 20th century particularly at the center of debates over immigration, labor, eugenics, and racial theory. A 1906 article in the Journal of Outdoor Life, a noted anti-tuberculosis periodical, ran the following story. A Seattle matron who, instructing a new housemaid in the duty of cleansing the telephone, was interrupted by the maid, who assured her that she fully realized the necessity of such a precaution. When asked how the maid knew about this, she replied, Once my sister lived in a family where they didn't know they ought to clean the telephone, and one day, when one of the ladies went to use the telephone, she found a great big microbe right on it. It's humorous, of course, to imagine someone in the early 20th century thinking they could see a great big microbe with their naked eye laying on a telephone. But this anecdote tells us a great deal more about popular fears of germs in this period, about class relations, and about the everyday discourse of disinfection. Disinfection was such an everyday practice of public health in this period that some leading public health authorities began to even question its broad-scale effectiveness. One leading public health officer, Charles Chapin, in an off-cited speech to the American Medical Association in Boston in 1906, called for a new era, an end of what he called the fetish of disinfection. And it, it's an interesting phrase to use fetish in 1906 to talk about disinfection. And I think it absolutely describes just how widespread this practice was. It will make no demonstrable difference in a city's mortality, Chapin argued, whether its streets are clean or not, whether its garbage is removed promptly or allowed to accumulate, or whether it has a plumbing law. The key, according to advocates of what historians call the new public health, argued Chapin and many others at the time, was in knowing exactly who was sick in a community, of targeted efforts of disease surveillance, public sanitation, hospital isolation, and targeted disinfection. The key was also individual responsibility, Chapin and others argued, through personal hygiene. By 1904, Chapin's colleague, bacteriologist Charles Edward Armory Winslow, in an article titled Man in the Microbe in Popular Science Monthly, echoed Chapin by saying that it was people primarily and not things that mainly spread infectious disease. Advances in epidemiology and bacteriology 
in the period from 1880 to 1914, had shown that the vast majority of infectious diseases were spread either directly from person to person via respiratory droplets or indirectly via food, water, or insects. Chapin enshrined these ideas in his popularly aimed 1917 book, How to Avoid Infection. It was an interesting take, and I want to pause here and ask some questions. To what extent was the shift in focus and rationale over disinfection an effective public health strategy? I think we can say that earlier public health authorities had wasted time, money, and labor in wholesale disinfection. But what did the new public health, a redirection and refocusing of disinfection practices, bring to bear in reality? This is a critical question, as it's clear that Chapin and Winslow's idea of targeted disinfection privileged some Americans over others. Protecting the public's health came down to public health education and identifying who in the community was not keeping themselves clean and, si and who was sick. A salient reminder even today of how uneven those practices were at the time was that of Mary Mallon, an Irish immigrant cook who asymptomatically infected dozens of New Yorkers with typhoid fever and was imprisoned for decades on North Brother Island against her will her gender, and her ethnicity perhaps marking her out more than her perceived health risk. Remember that at this time in American history, it was one of massive demographic and environmental change, as urban communities became more diverse due to immigration and urbanization, daily interactions with strangers became routine in urban settings. Coupled with xenophobic and nativist popular fears of quote-unquote dirty immigrants, invisible microbial secretions, as Chapin liked to call them in his writings, fueled an industry in the early 20th century where disinfection became even more important in stopping the spread of the disease. The public health powers to identify, to isolate, and to disinfect homes, goods, and people was unequally applied to the working classes, immigrants, and people of color. Germ practices, in other words, cut across germ prophecies at the time, phrases such as germs know no color line and germs are no respecter of persons. And so there's this disjunct between the rhetoric of what public health officials were saying and the reality of what they were doing. And when I'm, I want to pause here and ask another question. How did notions of contagion via dangerous unseen germs translate into the language of moral contagion, a popular fear of the early 20th century? I'm going to explore this by using some context. So between 1870 and 1914, more than 30 million immigrants came to the U.S., particularly from Southern and Eastern Europe, Asia, and Central America. The rate of immigration was at its height in the first decade of the 20th century, with 10 to 11 immigrants arriving per 1,000 residents per year. By 1920, to put this into some perspective, almost 60% of big American cities were made up of first or second generation immigrants. This massive demographic change alarmed native-born Americans. It also corresponded to the, with the rise of bacteriology and epidemiology 
to the identification of the causal role of invisible germs in spreading disease, and to the idea of how disease is spread in the community and could be traced by following individuals, what today we call case tracing. Historians of medicine have also explored how this period saw, for the first time in American history, the rise in the cultural authority of medicine and public health. A useful example to consider is the enormous power of the U.S. Public Health Service in this period, in the broader patterns of medical surveillance. The most explicit example in the period from 1900 to World War I were the immigration stations at Ellis Island on the East Coast and Angel Island on the West Coast, which routinely turned away immigrants for fear of spreading both germs and also moral decay. American public health officials at this time were often oblique about their concerns. Dr. Alfred Reed, for example, an Ellis Island officer, wrote that the dregs and offscorings of foreign lands, the undesirables of whom their own nations are only too eager to purge themselves, themselves come and host to our shores. This was the period both at home and abroad when public health officers mirrored military and police officers in uniform and in the want of authority. And we can think back to that example of that public health marketing campaign by Sapolio Soap. Historians use the phrase gunboat diplomacy to describe American foreign policy in the early 20th century. And I think we might rightly extend this concept to think about the militarized ways that both imperial and domestic American sanitary policy was both conceived in theory and also put into practice. Immigration, it's clear, was a highly politicized, racialized, and medicalized issue in the first decade of the 20th century. The passage of the 1891 Immigration Act empowered health authorities at ports and at the northern and southern borders to ban immigrants with criminal records, prostitutes, and those with contagious diseases. This legislation required steamship companies to inspect and to disinfect immigrants and ships before leaving European docks. As historians of this topic, Howard Markell and Alexandra Stern have shown, because of prevailing racial and class stereotypes, Mexican and Chinese immigrants were more frequently targeted at the borders. Their blood and urine was suspect to the gaze of medical inspectors, and they were more frequently taken aside and disinfected with harsh and dangerous chemical agents. Most students know something about the medical inspection at East Coast port stations like Ellis Island but much less is often known about the similar practices that were occurring along the 2,000-mile border between Mexico and the U.S. At the U.S.-Mexican border, American public health officials erected medical surveillance stations all along the border from California to Texas and routinely disinfected immigrants. And here we can see a real push and pull between southern growers and industrial factory owners who wanted cheap labor, and the demands of the U.S. Public Health Service and Anglo-Protestant middle classes to keep America quote-unquote safe, native, and clean. Interestingly, before 1900, migrant labor between the U.S. and Mexico was routine for many Mexicans and unproblematic for many Americans. 
After the Mexican Revolution in 1910, however, U.S. immigration officials and the U.S. Public Health Service began to severely crack down, refaming Mexican migrant workers as both diseased and dirty. One glaring example worth mentioning was in 1915, when American officials got word of a typhus epidemic raging in Mexico. When health officials discovered several cases of typhus in El Paso, Texas in 1916, they began a full-on quarantine, which started in El Paso and extended to all border stations. Health officials were charged with disinfecting and de-lousing all persons, quote-unquote, considered as likely to be vermin-infested. Strikingly, Mexican immigrants across the border were stripped naked, drenched with kerosene, closely examined for lice and nits, and even vaccinated for smallpox against their will. After their clothes and belongings were disinfected and fumigated, Mexican immigrants received a public health service certificate which verified, in the language used at the time, that they had, quote-unquote, had been deloused, bathed, vaccinated, clothing and baggage disinfected. Interestingly, although the threat of typhus soon ended, this heavy-handed, ethically questionable, and highly dehumanizing set of public health practices continued on the U.S.-Mexican border until the 1930s. U.S. immigration officials used other technologies to control what they saw as dangerous threats to American stability as well. As historian Ann Pelger Gordon has shown, at Angel Island in San Francisco, public health authorities required Chinese immigrants to provide photographic documentation of their legitimacy to enter the U.S., a policy not extended to Southern European immigrants at stations such as Ellis Island. Authorities, using bogus racial science of the day, believed they could distinguish between respectable quote-unquote and criminal Chinese immigrants based solely on the photograph. As West Coast officials increasingly sought to limit and even exclude Chinese immigrants, the latter often tried U.S. entry along the Mexican border. A new fear emerged amongst American health officials that Chinese migrants secretively played themselves off as Mexican, making immigration photographs even more complex and politicized. Historians have noted that in the period from 1891 to 1924, less than 3% of the total number of immigrants were rejected for medical reasons. But that number doesn't reflect the total number of immigrants who were subjected to dehumanizing inspection and disinfection and the kind of impact that had on them and their lives and their families. The broader and deeper cultural currents swirling around disinfection were metaphors of immigrants being both diseased and criminals. We can see this, I think, quite directly in the advertising of disinfectant products to middle-class white Americans. The German-American Lautz Brothers Soap Company used racially charged scientific language to suggest that the dark color of African-American skin to be dirty and diseased. Their disinfectant soap in their advertising could wash it away, theoretically. With the increase in lynching in the American South and the movement of African-Americans to northern cities, coupled with massive European immigration into the 1920s, were all factors that contributed to middle-class anxieties of the mobility of the poor, 
the mobility of germs and the need for targeted disinfection. And I think hopefully you can see here how this maps onto the language that people like Chapin and Winslow were saying above from their ivory towers of American public health. African-Americans in particular, legal historians have found, were disproportionately found guilty of sanitary-related crimes in this period. A 1909 article in McClure's magazine, for example, titled The Vampire of the South, argued that, quote, Negro crimes of violence number dozens where his sanitary sins number tens of thousands. For one crime, a mob will gather in an hour to lynch him. He may spread the hookworm and typhoid from end to end of a state without rebuke. As historian Joanne Brown has persuasively argued, the germ theory evolved in tandem with the racist post-Reconstruction ideology of white supremacy and was consistent in many fundamental ways with racist fears of miscegenation and sexual pollution. We shouldn't be surprised that there was there were outspoken critic, critics from within the ranks of African-American advocates. Activists like W.E.B. Du Bois convincingly argued that the health inequalities of African-Americans were largely due to structural conditions that stemmed from American racism, not from an inherent biological difference that white eugenicists like to claim. Du Bois's The Health and Physique of the American Negro, which spurred a conference to address race and health inequality in 1906, galvanized new approaches to pushing back against the confluence of race and medicine. And although white middle-class Americans especially targeted African Americans as the index case of outbreaks and the spreaders of contagion, there were others they aimed their sanitary glances at as well. We've discussed the targeted efforts aimed at Chinese Americans on the West Coast, but Irish Americans in cities like Boston and Philadelphia were also targets, and so too were Italian and Russian Americans in New York, who embodied to middle-class white Americans the dangerous, the other, the alien, the unsanitary. The fear of germs in the early 20th century was inexplicably, I think, about fear of the invisible. But in reality and in practice, through looking at the labor of disinfection, it materialized itself with the fear of the very scene of racial and ethnic difference. This period saw the explosion of new sanitary products that I think helped to reify and reflect these broader, broader cultural ideologies. Vacuum cleaners, incinerators, sanitary drinking fountains, sanitary underwear, ventilated shoes, disinfectants, and soap. And in no small irony, it was immigrants who largely comprised the factory labor who made middle-class consumer hygienic goods. Making cheap industrial consumer goods in factories was a dangerous proposition in this period, one that I think we have to take really seriously for the long-term health of the working classes through chronic illness, and sometimes the literally explosive nature of factory work, the most famous being the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in Greenwich Village in New York City in 1911, which killed around 150 garment workers. Entrepreneurs in this period played on middle-class fears of the proximity to the dangerous working classes, marketing scores of new germ-free products. 
What you bring into your home, advertisers claimed, can make it dangerous. From the garments from the factory to the food on your table. Like advertising for consumer goods, the marketing extended to muckraking journalism as well, as such as Upton Sinclair's 1906 novel The Jungle, portraying the untenable conditions in the meatpacking industry in Chicago. Middle-class anxieties about immigration and labor dovetailed around the fear of germs. Things brought into middle-class homes, especially those things made by the working classes, were believed to be needed to be sanitized. Chief among domestic products aimed at the anxiety-ridden middle classes was the New York-based Lennon Fink Company, who produced Lysol as an all-purpose disinfectant. In popular middle-class magazines such as the Ladies' Home Journal, readers learned that, quote, diseases besiege every home. From every case of sickness, hordes of invisible disease germs swarm forth to spread contagion, even to the cleanest appearing homes. Middle-class women were charged with transforming their homes from germ-haunted houses into germ-proof homes. And such as American military, military metaphors dominated the early 20th century landscape, so too did anti-germ products and advertising. Lysol was a guardian of the home. Advertisers played off the invisibility of germs and their ubiquity in public and in the home. And that's interesting, I think, because it was inconsistent with the specific logic of the new public health leaders like Chapin and Winslow. When marketers did personify germs, they did so by combining xenophobia and middle military metaphors. One popular example was a, a common figure to this period called Jimmy the Germ. He was an ethnic minority in anti-typhoid posters, and we can see other examples uh, like the black hand of typhoid and typhoid being spread by Asian serpents in public health handbills. The period from 1900 to World War I in America certainly was one of nativism, epitomized perhaps by what Theodore Roosevelt called in a speech in Kansas in 1910, the new nationalism of a powerful federal government to regulate economic and social matters. Public health certainly fell into that agenda, at home and abroad. But in practice, protecting human welfare, one of Roosevelt's central claims, was not always extended to all Americans. Often these divisions were along racial and ethnic lines. But they were perhaps also unsurprisingly gendered. In a 1912 article in Munsey's magazine titled How to Make Yourself Germ-Proof, Dr. William Lee Howard suggested that, quote, there is scarcely a woman or girl who does not daily carry deadly, deadly germs to her lips and mouth. Dirty money, bills or silver, hat pins, a strand of some dead Chinaman's hair, theater tickets, newspapers, programs, combs. It looks to me as if women never outgrew the baby age. Everything they take hold of goes into their mouths. We can also see the specific targeting of women as spreaders of disease through the explosion of hygienic products aimed at women in the early 20th century. Often advertisements for feminine hygiene or personal hygiene overlapped with eugenics and social hygiene discourses, to the extent that in the 1950s, Lysol recommended to women that their product could be used for, quote, 
personal hygiene, a common euphemism telling women that it was a contraceptive and abortifacent. Lysol and Listerine in particular dominated the domestic side of disinfection and were the favorites of physicians who recommended in popular commercials, noting, quote, follow the lead of those who know, use Lysol for personal hygiene and for home disinfection. Popular manufacturers of disinfection soaps, such as Johnson & Johnson, advertise that their antiseptic soap should be used by mothers, necessarily mingling with every type of humanity in the stores, theaters, and at social affairs, so that they wouldn't carry infection home to their children. And notice the kind of the rhetoric of the advertising here. The contemporary early 20th century personification of germs overlapped in real and sharp ways along racial and gendered lines. Stereotypical black washerwomen with the name Soap Sally, Chinese laundrymen A. Hang On Cold, the Irish Typhoid Mary, and tuberculosis Bridget, and Jimmy the Germ. They all embodied popular nativist sentiments amongst Anglo-Protestant middle-class Americans. Jimmy the Germ, who I've mentioned a couple times, is a character worthy of closer examination. He frequented popular magazines such as the American Medical Association's popular health magazine, Hygieia. Jimmy was a personified germ cartoon with a five o'clock shadow beard. He was skinny and with a hooked nose. He represented contemporary racialized caricatures of Jews in particular and of Southern European immigrants in general. In Jimmy's cartoons, he reveled in tormenting white Anglo-Protestant children with sickness who refused to properly wash and brush their teeth. Cartoons like the Jimmy the Germ, particularly in the hands of anti-immigration nativists and eugenicists, provided fuel for large-scale intervention by the hands of public health authorities. Using oversimplified notions of Mendelian theories of dominant and recessive traits and genes, Eugenicist logic implied that immigrants were weaker, more susceptible to disease and criminality, and that their admission to the U.S. threatened the health and the economic prosperity of the nation. Given that immigrant labor was fueling American factories, the inconsistency of the logic is easily seen today. But it was the popular logic of white middle-class Americans, and many of those in power, leading famously to the epitome of nativism acts the 1921 Immigration Act, and the 1924 National Origins Act. And finally, we can see the way that disinfection was central to American imperialism in this period. During the Spanish-American War and the building of the Panama Canal, it was undoubtedly true and recognized by health authorities at the time that the threat of disease was undoubtedly the greatest danger to these endeavors. American expansion, in other words, American imperial ambitions overseas very much depended on the type of germ practices that we've talked about here today. In other words, the carbolic craze was not just a domestic practice of hygienic modernity. America's imperial ambitions were also guided by the practices of transforming, through cleanliness and chemicals, indigenous peoples into respectable citizens. Examining American public health efforts in the Philippines, historian Warwick Anderson has shown that disinfection was key in the imperial American efforts in the nearly 50-year period 
of American occupation in the Philippines from 1898 to Philippine independence in 1946. A key period was the first several years of American occupation. At the conclusion of the Spanish-American War in 1898, America was ceded the archipelago as part of the Treaty of Paris, but almost immediately, Philippine nationalists declared independence from the newly installed American occupants, leading to several years of conflict known as the Philippine-American War, lasting from 1899 to 1902. Victor Heiser, controversial American public health officer and director of public health in the Philippines from 1905 to 1915, spearheaded the efforts of America's imperial public health, making clear that, quote, the health of these peoples is the vital question of the islands. Hygienic reform, Anderson shows, was key to the civilizing process in American eyes even if in reality the process of what he calls biomedical citizenship was uneven and incomplete. In the Philippines, American public health officers in practice tried to civilize Filipinos by using military-infused practices common to those we explored earlier domestically. They focused on Filipino personal habits, particularly waste disposal. In his book, Colonial Pathologies, Anderson uses one of the best phrases that American public health officers believe Filipinos were promiscuous defecators. Key to American efforts in the Philippines was the Rockefeller Foundation, an American organization that funded massive public health projects at home, such as an anti-hookworm campaign, and across the world. It is interesting to consider the ways in which the early foundations of international health such as the World Health Organization, were shaped by Western public health ideas and practices that were inherently based on racial ideology and ideas of Western superiority. By way of a conclusion, let me provide one final thought to this lecture. The carbolic craze of the early 20th century faded only slowly, and as our current pandemic has shown, maybe not much at all. From the late 19th century, we become obsessed with killing germs particularly on surfaces. And as I've explored in this lecture, however, the application of killing germs, of disinfection, was uneven in its early history. The blame of spreading disease and the target of disinfection fell upon racial and ethnic minorities, and often women. And I challenge you to think about the ways in which this legacy survives today in responding to our own pandemic of COVID-19. Thank you so much for listening and for involving me in this amazing project. Listening to that, as I have several times at this point, the educator in me always envies Jacob a little bit because I wish I could replicate that kind of ease of delivery and that uh, connectivity of communication and the power of his analysis. Uh, that was born out in the uh, Q&A as well. Karen Yokota was with me for a very lively session. Enjoy. Jacob Steer-Williams, welcome to the podcast. 
Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm doing well today. And I also want to extend a special welcome to the illustrious chair of the OAH Marketing Communications Committee and my co-pilot slash co-conspirator in this season one of the interval series on the history of public health, Carrie Ann Yakoda. Welcome, Carrie Ann. Thanks so much, Chris. This is really great. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, well, it's great to have you here. And I, I just want to share with the audience that Carrie Ann had to in order to be with us today to replace a set of headphones, Carrie Ann had to cross an international border. So she's she's the real uh, hero of our afternoon here with you all. And uh, Jacob, thank you for the talk. I thought it was so fantastic. And I think m almost more so than any of the other ones, each of them has a little special something, right? There's, there's a little special superlative something in each of these. I feel like yours had so many useful frameworks that it gave me to understand uh, this moment in uh, not just the American story, but in history of science, history of medicine. Um, and you brought some of yourself into it too. Your talk goes into a lot about how uh, public health authorities really had these vast kind of sweeping powers that would surprise a contemporary audience. So uh, I guess that maybe I'd want to start there and ask you about um, public health expertise in this moment um, and this the the carbolic craze you described. One of the great things about recording this lecture and, and working, you know, with y'all for the OAH and this this incredible series is is being a historian of public health in in this moment of dealing with our own public health crisis. And that's been probably the most jarring reality for me is is seeing. Our, our country and our world respond to our own crisis and being able to sort of see the roadmap of where we're going while it's happening in real time based on historical precedent. And it was no surprise to me early in the pandemic, and this has continued, but I think it's, it's, it's also wavered a little bit of this real obsession with, with cleaning and disinfecting. And, you know, there's, as I, as I mentioned to start my lecture, there is, you know, er, the first, I think, three to six months of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in the U.S., there was this real materialization, I think, and activism of everyday people wanting to have some control over an uncontrollable pandemic. And, yeah. and that control manifested itself in this sort of everyday reality of how people try to interact with their own environments, how they interact with their household, how what they do when they leave their household. And so I share this anecdote about pumping gas, you know, at a gas station and and myself disinfecting the the pump handle, but then being admonished by a stranger that it was a dangerous sort of activity. Right. Someone someone COVID shamed you. Yeah, exactly. And um and what's what's so fascinating to me about that is how this this fear over the transmission of microorganisms is is nothing new um mm -hmm. but in fact it belies a kind of 21st century epidemiology of covid-19 so we know that the biggest pathways for spreading covid are, are is through respiratory droplets it's being close to other people and and being close to people who are sick with this disease, um, that's the main pathways epidemiologically for spreading it. It's not it, it's not, and it never has been in the scientific literature through surface infection. 
Um, and, and what's interesting to me about that and what I've constantly during this year been uh, really fascinated with is, is what is the reason for that? What's the reason for us in a moment of a crisis of, of an infectious disease, we turn to surfaces and we mm-hmm. turn to d- chemicals. Um, you know, we turn to a kind of everyday technology or what we might call an everyday technology to solve our own sort of, um, persistent fears. And, and that legacy really began in the late 19th century. And, and it began at a time of the, the discovery and laboratories of the, you know, the, the, the essential causes at the level of microorganisms for most infectious diseases. And then very quickly, the, that handful of laboratory discoveries exploded into a new reality for everyday Americans. And so in this way, I think, you know, our one way to think through our own moment is to turn towards, you know, about 100 years ago and to see how Americans were grappling with with another set of, you know, disease public health crises. Yeah. And you, I mean, it's you talk about notions of contagion as being, you know, moral and racial and ethnic as much as it is microbial. And uh, you use that to to bring in the way that disinfection and decontamination, the logic of antisepsis was being applied to people who were crossing the border to people who uh, in the global South who end up becoming uh, uh, objects of U.S. colonization policy overseas. Um, did each of those things, did, did one precede the other? I mean, I don't want to get too, too um, you know, rudimentary cause and effecty, but, uh, it seems to me that, uh, you know, that, 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 the, the, the carbolic craze you're describing is both an, uh, a result, um, of, uh, this, this antisepsis logic that is getting, uh, but also like a technique of empire. And, um, so there's like cause and effect happening both in that, let's say just in, in that one sphere. Um, do you get the sense about, the order of things, the way this played out and how they kind of interacted or operated historically? Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating is, you know, we might take a tw- an early 20th century approach and, and see that the logic of disinfection stems out of the sort of discoveries of the late 19th century laboratories. But in fact, that that story doesn't really fit with the literature either, because, you know, already by the by the early decades of the 19th century, with fear of, you know, early industrialization in American cities and in European cities and fear of of, you know, the sort of dangerous urban spaces and urban smells, disinfection and fumigation, you know, already was was in, you know, both public health practice and in popular minds. Um, but what does change, and I think something does precipitously change with the discovery uh, uh, from the laboratory of, of, of medical science of the, of the micropathological origin of disease is is it gets recharged in new ways. And it gets recharged at the exact same time period when American imperial interests overseas are starting to change and these big questions about you know, nativism and immigration and, and industrialization are starting to change too. So it, there is, I think, a little bit of order to the logic of how this discussion of disinfection changes in America. Um, 
but but it is important to realize that this you know by 1900 when i think this carbolic what i call a carbolic craze really really explodes onto the american consciousness and cuts across all levels you know border to border and north to south um and and domestically and 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 across the world i think you know there there already were precedents there the way in which kind of citizenship itself like notions of citizenship become medicalized in the talk you're describing it reminds me very much of of uh, uh, some countries are creating vaccine passport systems, right, to facilitate this gradual kind of de-escalation of quarantine and re-entry, reopen, if you will, in the in the American language. Charles Rosenberg, who's you know a historian of 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 medicine and public health and in American history, long ago described pandemics as as dramaturgical is having a dramaturgical kind of mm. effect that they begin on a certain stage and there's they reach a climax and then they then they end and one of the things that i keep trying to think about in that framework is how at once that's such a clever way of thinking about epidemics and pandemics but also how we don't experience and we're all seeing this we don't experience pandemics as individuals in the same way they don't just spread like a mist across the world or across a country to the to the extent to where even in my class right now that i'm teaching i've got students because of covid that are all across the country and they're experiencing and you know we sort of i sort of start class every day with an update on covid um, because i'm teaching a class in the history of disease and 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 students are are making this really plain that they're not even experiencing the pandemic right now a year later in the same way but one of the things that i think relates to this that i keep i keep really myself obsessing about is there's such a promise right now about the end of covid in mm -hmm. the us that I think what that belies is the reality that the vaccine or a vaccine solution, a, a technological solution, is is it, it might lower rates in the U.S., but globally we're going to be grappling with this disease for for decades. Um, and and I think back to this moment in the early in the early 20th century when pub, through public health and through some some real changes in in the public health landscape and in the landscape of sanitary technologies that the major infectious diseases that that Americans were grappling with, um, they started to decline and the health landscape started to improve. Um, but it didn't improve around the world. And, and, and we start to see by the early 20th century some big divides between the global north and the global south. And I think that's, that's squarely part of this, this long legacy of what I describe in my lecture and what we're still dealing with today with COVID. What I think this and in, in what I try to focus on in the lecture and in, you know, in my research is the way in which the emergence of public health technocratic states they tend to privilege certain narratives and our archive you know re represents this privileging too so it has tended to 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 privilege the voices of those scientists and those public health officials who are overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly white in, in the US and and what it ignores i think is the reality that public health experts by the early 20th century those folks who were largely white and largely male and they were trying to grow disciplines and create really create disciplines um <clears throat> in fields like bacteriology and epidemiology and 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 they were largely pretty successful at doing that um by the early 20th century and what that 
privileges and what it ignores is the fact that the the everyday practices of public health were 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 ones that were that were practiced by working class people and and people of color and and I think what's what's important and interesting about that is this narrative on disinfection it sort of turns us away from just the voices of those public health officials to the reality of who was actually doing this work who were the ones who were the people the the everyday laborers who were in the archive are, are mostly invisible they're mostly mm-hmm. folks that that aren't they don't have names they don't have voices their narratives largely weren't recorded but but they were the ones who handled big vats of carbolic acid and mixed it into pump sprayers and they went into neighborhoods that that they were told to go into often they were the neighborhoods of their own where they lived or where mm-hmm. their friends and family lived and and they did the destruction you know they did they did what we now today would call frontline public health work and what's so interesting about that about covid and and I feel like no one's talking about this I mean we know it but we're not talking about it is you know this recent studies that are coming out on covid in the US have said that bipoc populations are somewhere between 3 to 5 times more likely to get COVID and die of COVID. And, and there's a lot of structural reasons of, of, of racial inequality um, that, that, are, that are driving those statistics in the U.S., um, but they're ones that aren't new either. So, so in, in the, at the turn of the 20th century, the, the period that I talk about in this lecture, those same forces were happening. And it was because of the differential way in which certain populations, whether that was via race or class or gender, were targeted as being blamed for the spread of infectious disease. But it's also because of this labor question of who was on the front lines of doing the work that was the most dangerous kind of work. Entering into the headspace or the lived experience of those workers uh, is something that's hard, right? Because you, you, you're saying they're, they're not present in the archives. They're absent from, from those spaces. So how do we draw them into the narrative that you're telling and and the stories you're trying to reconstruct yeah so partly and this is this is what my current book project is on um partly it's looking at really mundane archival files and so um if you look at late 19th early 20th century um american and european public health officials one of the things that they were actually quite good at is is data recording and data keeping. And that was based on this ethos that they believed that keeping statistics and records was part of this statist technological solution too. So it was drawing up monthly reports and annual reports and, and you know, just really kind of banal kind of what we now would consider everyday archival kind of fi- administrative files. But one of the things that I'm finding as I'm getting in, you know, I've been, I've been working on this book now for, for several years, but um, one of the things that I'm finding by looking at everyday sort of administrative records is there are often lists of the number of workers employed and then every once in a while, what you find is like workers who 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 aren't doing so they're the laborers who weren't doing, you know, a, a quote unquote good enough job. And so they get fired or they get admonished. And sometimes those records just jump out at you in the archives. And so while sometimes they're nameless or often they're nameless and their their own firsthand accounts um, weren't recorded, you can sort of cut across the administrative archival files to see what what might have been that everyday lived experience. Carrie Ann, you've been teaching in this space for some time. I'm just curious to hear 
some of your reactions too and your questions. Yeah, no, thank you. I was going to thank Jacob for his lecture. I think it's going to be great for those of us who are teaching in uh, U.S. history, race, and immigration. And I was going to ask um, if you could talk to us more about the racial and socioeconomic implications of your research and this lecture in particular. Um, what I wanted to ask was, you know, I think for people that are working in your field, you're really looking at the um, confluence of where scientific, so-called scientific facts, at least as they're understood at the time being studied, where that meets um, racist stereotypes, um, fears of, of the other race, race, gendered, socioeconomic stereotypes, because I think time and again, people will, will ask, well, but is it true? Or, you know, if the rates of, of infection are higher in places that happen to be populated by people of color, then how do we make scientific facts? So it's, it's about separating the medical and scientific knowledge um, of how to stay safe and how to fight a contagion or a pandemic with um, separating that from already existing uh, racial stereotypes and irrational, as what we would call irrational fears. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big, complicated, um, complex set of questions. And I think you're, you're absolutely spot on, Kiri-Ann, in, in identifying it. And, in, you know, in my own teaching, in, 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 in teaching the history of public health and the history of disease, that's kind of one of the central questions that we grapple with all semester. And in some ways, it's one of the central questions that's driven all of my, my research, my entire career. And, and, you know, I think there's, there's part of this that, that, that really gets at the heart of modernism as a kind of concept itself, because at once, you know, I think there's a way in which we, we want to place trust into the scientific process and the scientific expertise. And yet the more we study it and grapple with it, the more we realize how inherently political it is and how inherently gendered it is and how inherently um, racially inflected it is as well. And, you know, this, this set of topics around disinfection and, and, and turn of the century uh, public health, I think, is it, is it useful? It's not the only window, but it's just, it's one maybe useful window into this because, you know, there's, there's all, you, you can sort of, you can compartmentalize yourself if you look at the wrong sources and just, you can see the positivism of medical science and by the early 20th century. You can just, you know, read triumphant reports by laboratory scientists of a new discovery of a bacillus or of an if quote unquote effective public health measure. And, and you might see that as the sort of progressive trump of, of science, right? And, and yet when you really start digging into it and you see um, the advertisement of, of certain antibacterial products. You know, one of the ones I mentioned, you know, that, that still exists today is Lysol and, you know, the early history of Lysol and, 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 you know, you can look at probably any of these commercial products and think about how they were advertising, what tropes did they use? Who was the object, who were the objects of, of who was supposed to become clean? And that cleanliness both had a, a scientific, uh, quote unquote scientific merit of what it meant to be germ free, but it, but it very much had a moral valence too of who needed to be cleaned. 
And, and I think that's where we can start seeing the sort of, or move beyond rather the abstract notion of what is the, the sort of change in science and scientific knowledge over time. And then the reality of, of how it's engendered and has become, has been engendered in the past and how that has shaped our, our history as well. Well, if I may follow up, um, can you talk a little bit about how the things that you're talking about in the lecture, how it's um, implicated in the understandable suspicion of um, those who identify in communities of color or, or marginalized communities, their suspicion, and it's, it's like I said, understandable, of um, official um, decrees regarding public health. And I think it's something that both touches on what you're talking about in the lecture, but also says a lot about um, what we're struggling with today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think we're seeing the the statistics jump out at us today with COVID and, and who is more susceptible and what communities are more susceptible to getting and, and dying from COVID. And, and that maps on pretty, pretty neatly, maybe not precisely, but pretty neatly onto the past. And so, you know, one of the things, if, if you take a, an aerial view of the late 19th, early 20th century in America, and you start looking at where public health attention was was focused. And that's where I think we as historians, we sort of have this obligation to think about, well, what did what did people say, but what did people actually do? Right? There's the level of rhetoric that we can look at and popular culture, which is super important. And I think there's a lot of valuable lessons to looking at late 19th, early 20th century advertisements for things like Lysol and Sapolio soap, um, which which were highly racialized. Um, and, and then looking at the everyday practices of what public health officials actually did. So where did they target their efforts? And, you know, I think there's there's a way in which we do this in our teaching and also in our research. We, we can, we've compartmentalized the experience of something like uh, a newly arrived person to Ellis Island or to Angel Island uh, or to the, the, the Mexican-American border. And we see those in isolation, but an aerial view, if you really zoom out, uh, I think what it shows you is just how pervasive something else more deeply rooted was happening. There was this new faith in medical science and public health to solve problems, but and and it seemed probably to Amer to many middle class Americans at the time, it probably seemed more scientific than than anything it ever looked, and yet that was part of this process whereby newly arrived immigrants, women, and people of color were being unfairly targeted as the spreaders of, of disease. They were the ones that needed to be cleaned the most. So there's this really um, incredible in inversion that happens by the early 20th century that I, that's one of my frameworks in this lecture. The germ, one of the things that the germ theory does that, that modern laboratory science does is it, it makes visible, it reveals to people what is the the true quote unquote cause of disease. But at the same time, there is this new fear to everyday people of the invisible because it's not, it's no longer that, that, that diseases are caused by bad smells or, you know, rotting heaps of garbage in towns. Now it's that germs can lurk everywhere. They can lurk on surfaces of your door handle. Um, they can they can they can lurk on you know cable cars or in, in movie theaters and Nickelodeons, penny arcades. But but more more importantly, how that materializes itself is 
is a kind of fear of the invisible germ lurking in moral decay. And it's, it's lurking in people that look differently than, than you do. And, you know, you know, historians have focused for so long on, on late 19th, early 20th century nativism. And I think, you know, when we, when we really look closely at public health practices at this time, it fits really squarely with some longstanding discourses of the way in which we've described this, this period in American history. I think it crystallized for many middle-class white Americans, a new kind of technology of control. And, you know, one of the things that that the germ theory does is it, it makes people feel pretty controlless and anxious. You know, there's a new anxiety that I think lurks in everyday spaces. You know, you know, scholars for 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 a while now have talked about this period being this period in 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 global history being one of collapsing time and space, that there's some real sort of changes in the way in which everyday people conceptualized of the, the spaces around them and their their place in the world. And I think that, that that led to a lot of anxiety. And so knowledge of germs and and the kind of promises of, of germ technologies for a lot of middle class Americans presented an opportunity to take control. And and I think the way that that manifested itself was in a couple ways. One was a domestic side and a whole series of domestic products that were largely targeted towards middle-class white women. Mm-hmm. And then the other side was this very public of what did public health officials do in targeting certain populations at the borders and in urban spaces that were largely people of color. Right. So where does this go after you leave us off. I mean, you 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 know where this story goes because you're working on a on a book about it, right? So, mm-hmm. where does this go after? I mean, if those hierarchies ever get dismantled, how does that happen? And what should we be mindful of? Uh, you know, as as we're living through this own moment where it's entirely, you know, we've seen a lot of scapegoating, a lot of these hierarchies being reassembled. So like, mm-hmm. as th- this change over time has happened, has there been change over time? And if so, how did those transformations occur? Yeah, Part, partly, I think on the on the domestic side of of anti disease, anti infection, I think a lot of that just became domesticated or what we would call a sort of set of domesticated technologies. And so I think many people, and that's why when, when COVID struck, they didn't even think twice about stocking up on, on disinfectant wipes and and on disinfected household products. Um, I think that was a sort of natural extension of the way in which from the early 20th century, this has just been something that, that everyday Americans do, right. Um, when they're afraid of a disease, Um, what's interesting to me to think about is, you know, did those products that we can look back and, um, you know, anyone can, you know, you can jump on to Google images, for example, and you can put in Sapolio soap, one of the examples that I mentioned in my lecture, um, and, and, and almost every single one of them, it's so what jumps out at us today is just how, how gendered and racial those advertisements are. Right. And yet so, you don't so see we're that not today. That far, we're not that far away, really, from Jimmy the germ. Yeah, I think so. Um, the the other side of this, so I think that domestic side has been really consistent, actually. That 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 you know, 
We see it, you know, continue in the sort of suburbia movement of the mid 20th century. And we see the sort of need to clean even in appliances. This is something that um, that Nancy Toms in her book, The Gospel of Germs, talks about. It's just so incredible how middle class Americans uh, by the mid 20th century wanted all of their appliances and their surfaces to be white in their houses, that it was this kind of like white support sepulcher to try to eliminate homes from from dangerousness and i think you know that in some ways um continues today but it's just something that's become you know domesticated as i said where i think we 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 might look a little differently is to see you know where our public health approaches are today in dealing with covid so in some ways you're right at the beginning when we opened chris and saying that you know, when we look back at this period in American history, it seems really heavy handed of what public health officials were doing and the kind of sweeping powers they had to go. They had to go into, you know, everyday American neighborhoods, uh, particularly in urban sp- urban cities, and to destroy people's things and to forcefully remove them from their houses and send them to isolation hospitals and to and to, you know, march into their homes. And I think, you know, right now with COVID, we're seeing something really quite different in some ways. And we're seeing, you know, the issue of public health being one squarely about personal rights and individual liberties. And so I think if we mapped on this discussion onto big political questions that have happened in this country in the past 150 years, I think we can see some swings in in the political arena. Yeah, but that said, if I can just mention one thing that I wanted to talk about in this Q&A session was the fact that, you know, politics today, you see a a rise in anti-Asian-American violence on the streets of America. And so for me, it doesn't look, as somebody who teaches and studies race and ethnicity and ethnic studies, to me, you know, that that violation of space and of personal liberties, I, I see it as as a continuity rather than a disruption or a change. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, gl- I'm glad you bring that up. And, you know, I talk about this in my lecture as well. And I think it's a constant. It's 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 been, as you say, a continuity in, in America. And I think Western history, more broadly speaking, is when when there's something when there's a new disease, when there's a new pandemic, it it almost inexplicably gets blamed on, on an other. And, and more often than not in, 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 in American history, that's been blamed on, on Asian communities. And, and, and that thing tells us something really interesting, um, about, about these longstanding legacies of race and medicine and of just broader notions of, of race and racial science that, you know, when, when coronavirus, the novel coronavirus began, we saw an uptick um, not new, but an uptick of of xenophobia in this country and xenophobia in particular. And I think, I think that's you know, as a historian, it didn't surprise me. But the fact that it hasn't gone away um, a year into the pandemic um, probably means that it's something that we that that most Americans aren't aware of or or even grappling with. But but certainly many are are feeling it. Because as you mentioned, of the sort of everyday violence that, that's happening. Yeah, and also, I think you see an increase in the idea of national borders somehow. Uh, how, how does national, how do national borders protect us or 
not from contagion that that does not respect borders. So I think that's really interesting, and it's something that I thought of as I was listening to your lecture, um, the interplay between the two, that on the one hand, um, germs and contagions and pandemics cross borders willy-nilly, but on the other, we can use national policy and, and, and borders to try to protect our citizens versus them. So the kind of us versus them is a a continual theme in in what you're studying and what we're experiencing now and with every pandemic that we've we've seen in the past. Yeah. And I think you know the 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 global mortality and morbidity statistics they show that even today. And and they show this this story of how you know this is something that I teach and my students are always uh, they they're at once amazed by at first and then it seems very logical to them that you know if you look at the health landscape of of the US in the last you know 200 years you see that in the 19th century there's this major major struggle with infectious diseases by the early 20th century most of those infectious diseases start to decline to the extent to when in, in 1900 the leading causes of death in the US are tuberculosis and scarlet fever and diphtheria and typhoid and then by 1950 the leading causes of death are heart disease and cancer and, and and industrial accidents, and 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 yet in the in the global south, the major infectious diseases which the West used to deal with um, are still you know the the major killers. And I think one of the things that COVID is is I think starting to to teach many people that that aren't invested in the in the in the global public health literature is infectious diseases haven't gone away. And in some ways, I think if you combine, if you if you draw this arc between the emergence of HIV/AIDS in the '80s and and COVID-19, you see the sort of we're living in this broad scale historical time. We're living, we have been living really for a couple generations. We've been living in a, a new age of infectious disease, and and COVID-19 is just the latest manifestation of that. That we could talk about Ebola and SARS and 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 a whole other host of infectious diseases. And what's interesting, you know, you bring up to sort of tie that back together is almost all those were framed as dangerous others. They came from somewhere else. They were blamed on somewhere else. We need to protect our borders in the U.S. to stop them coming from coming in. And yet when that kind of framing doesn't work, Americans have tended culturally to just look inward on their own population and blame the parts of the population who look the most other, right? And 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 that's that seems to map really neatly onto this period that I talk about in my lecture of the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. So so it's it's more continuity than it is anything else. I um I have two more questions I think before just quickie little ones um before um I conclude, but uh, at least for my portion of the interview. But I um uh I would. How did you get interested in this? I mean, I, I, I do, th you know, it's, it's a really um, spectacularly, you know, rich field. Uh, and I mean, did you, did you come from some kind of a biomed background or were you always a history geek? I, um, <clears throat> I thought I would be a medical doctor when I was an undergraduate. And I, at some point thought that I would do MD, PhD work. Um, and maybe do a little bit of both. I never actually, I always um, admit this to students and and I do it with a little bit of a cringe that I never was actually that in, much interested in history um, growing up. And and it wasn't, um, 
but but something remarkable happened in my life in serendipitous ways that that um, all things happen in in our life that are meaningful, which is I went on a study abroad in my junior year when I was in in college, and it was a, a compare it was in London and it was a comparative US UK healthcare system. And, and at that point, I thought still I would I would do medical school as a route. And so I was a, an, the sole undergraduate with a bunch of first year med students in London for, for six weeks. And part of what we had to do, in addition to studying bioethics and comparative healthcare systems and public health, was to follow around a general practitioner uh, once a week. And so we would, you would, we would all have to meet at some hospital at you know some some forsaken hour, which is like five or six a.m. Um, and then we would just follow around a GP all day. And and one day, and this this truly changed my life. One day, I um, <clears throat> I went to meet. This GP at I'll never forget St. George's Royal Hospital hospital and I had to be there at like 5 30 a.m. So I, I I get out of bed and I go and and I and I'm and I wait for like an hour and, and the GP that I was supposed to meet with never showed up. She like called in sick that day. And so I thought it was like a major score. And I'm I'm literally walking out of this hospital and the coordinator for this program says, wait, instead of following the GP around, why don't you just follow this surgeon around? And 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 so I like hang my head, um, of course, because of my free day off in London has now been ruined. Um, but 15 minutes later, I was scrubbing in for a surgery and, and, and the surgery, um, was, was a C-section. And I stood as a junior in college on study abroad. Um, I stood next to a surgeon as he delivered this baby and, and what was so fascinating to me about this, and he like asked me real questions all along the way, like I was a fourth year medical student. Um, and I was, I think, just so taken aback that I couldn't really, in real time, it's one of those things that you sort of look back and you're like a fly in the walls feeling your own experience. But um, in the debriefing after that happened, he assumed that I was a medical student, an American medical student, not just an undergrad. And and from that time, I, I've really, I think it sparked this interest in in medical authority that I've been grappling with all ever since. Of of why is it that he, what did what was it about me? Was it my race? Was it my gender? What was it about me that that this you know British surgeon just thought you're part of the club? You can go and be part of, you know, invading someone's body that I was not qualified at all to do in any way. And, and you know, I've, I've been grappling with this big question of the rise of modern science and, and medical authority ever since in, in, in various ways. So um, but it, but how I got into this particular project about disinfection is um, I was I was working and finishing a book that just got published recently on the emergence of epidemiology and modern epidemiology. And I was in the Welcome Archives, and I found this photograph um, several years ago. And I've never seen anything like it. Um, I had never seen anything like it. And it was a picture of a, it was a photograph from the 1898 um, of a, a British uh, public health official in Karachi, um, and then British India, standing over a vat of carbolic acid and a line of indigenous Indians were lined up naked and one was in the bath of carbolic acid. And, and I just looked at that, that photograph and I said, this is what I need to spend the next decade studying. Um, and so 
as I've sort of started to, as we, as all of our historical projects do start to unravel the threads, what mm-hmm. I found is that, that, that th- these forms of disinfection were, were happening all across the world. And, and, and there, they were two pronged. One prong was this very heavy handed Western kind of, of faith in new forms of technology and new chemicals and new, new things to stop infectious diseases, which were targeted at, uh, at, at only certain populations, but the the patterns were repeatable, whether it was the British Empire or the French Empire or the American Empire or the German Empire. Um, and yet something else was happening at the same time that though that similar logic was being told to middle class white people too, that they could protect themselves in their homes. So disinfection is this valence that was both domestic and public and and cutting across boundaries all around the world right it 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 sort of explodes the distinction kind of between separation of spheres and 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 those boundaries in which so many of us kind of tend to think and you know frame set up uh the way labor was gendered for example you know labor relations and uh uh What's next for you now? I mean, you said you just had that book. Yeah, and this is, um, I want to, I want to encourage everyone to stay tuned because I know we have more to look forward to you from you moving forward. Yeah. So my epidemiology book just came out. Um, it's called the filth disease. Congratulations. Thank you. It's very weird to publish a book in a pandemic and not have any fun trying to launch a book or be happy about a book because, you know, just the everyday reality of being a parent. And, um, my, my partner works in the ER here in Charleston and deals with COVID cases every day. So we're just dealing with our own, like, micro experience of the pandemic. And then, um, so anyway, so that's, that's been my reality in the last year, but, um, but I'm working on, I'm working on this carbolic colonialism book of, of really trying to understand this moment, um, around the world and, and looking at some key episodes, um, of where that manifested itself. So I'm hoping to finish that book in the, the next couple of years. And, uh, from there, I don't know, some, some random archival finding will probably turn me in a different direction. But, um, you know, I, I think the same kind of questions that have been driving my research will continue. Yeah, these questions of medical authority and, you know, subject, object, and power, and it's wonderful stuff. Jacob Steer Williams, you are one gifted historian, and I want to thank you so much for, for joining us today. I'm sure Carrie Ann wants to. Thank you as well. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a great uh, Q&A session, and I'm sure everybody's going to love listening to your lecture as well. So thank you for sharing your research and knowledge with us. Thank you both so much. This was an incredible experience. I can't wait to hear the rest of the episodes myself. All right, everybody. Thank you again, Jacob Sear Williams. And that's a wrap. If you enjoyed Jacob's lecture as much as I did, then do be sure to check out his new volume, The Filth Disease, Typhoid Fever and the Practices of Epidemiology in Victorian England, recently put out, and by recent I mean like hot off the presses level recent, uh, recently published by our friends at the uh, University of Rochester Press in their uh, medical history series. Uh, And do join us again next week when... Dr. Farina King will introduce us to Dine, Doctor Histories. 
COVID-19 and generations of Navajo healers. We'll catch you then.